Hey, this is Jordan, and you're tuned to On Mic with Jordan Rich, a podcast that celebrates conversation with creative people. And uh, truth be told, I've got the best job on the planet. I get a chance to hang out with people like my guest today, who's a lifelong friend. Her name is Amanda Carr, and she's very well known in the Northeast as one of the premier jazz singers of her age. But she's a lot more than that. She's a great vocalist, but she's also a DJ MC. She's a radio host. She's written music. She's recorded a series of beautifully produced CDs over the years featuring the Great American Songbook and more. She's also a fine music teacher, and in my estimation, more than any of all this, she's a dynamic personality who loves people, and that's very evident in the work that she does and the joy that she brings to audiences. Let's go to town and welcome Amanda Carr to join us now on mic. Well, it's been a long time coming. <laughs> the great Amanda Carr is here, and you are great in so many ways. You're a great person. That's why I love you. And it's wonderful to see you uh, so busy. I know. Well, you know, I think we're all finding ways to be busy again. You know, we're realizing how important it is to be busy. Especially busy with other people in the room or in the in the field, as they say. I know. The things we, we're grateful for now that we never thought we'd be grateful for, right? But um, Well, one of them is live music. And the fact is, uh, you've got an amazing legacy and a career. But uh, to be in the music business as a performer and not being able to perform to people... We all went through the pandemic together, but that's especially tough. You know, for some people, they were able to do the online, you know, Facebook Live thing with the virtual tip jar. And I I just had no inspiration to do that. It just was going to be, for me personally, going to be unfulfilling. I would rather just gather with other people. So I waited it out. Um, I might have done one thing online because it was a challenge by another musician to take a song and make it your own and add it to Mm -hmm. the, Mm -hmm. the site. But aside from that, you know, I'm just thrilled to have made it out the other side. And I still did some live music performances within the construct of the of the restrictions people that had weddings or were able to do it in their backyard or you know have the few amount of people they could but uh, now things are really opening up again and I'm super busy you're of uh, the age where you should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame by now, but you ended up being, and still are, although you can sing anything, you ended up being one of the finest jazz singers uh, around in terms of what other jazz singers think about. They think about you as a top-flight pro. What brought you to jazz, per se? Um, I can tell you the the, the thought I had, um, having parents that were both in the jazz genre, or I used to say big band more Mm -hmm. than the typical jazz, but um, it's something that I grew up hearing but had no interest in it because that was my parents' music, you know, it's my parents' station wagon. Um, And then, um, you know, filling in for my mom, actually, on on some gigs, um, I thought to myself, hmm, I wonder what it would be like to record this. I wonder what I'd sound like recording this. And it was just kind of an, uh, you know, off off-the-cuff kind of thought. And um, so I I recorded a demo because my sound lent itself to the genre so that the the tone and the sound of my voice and the phrasing that I kind of just mimicked my mom's phrasing, it was very natural for me. So it wasn't something I studied. I really, to this day, don't know a lot about jazz. A lot of people who come to see me sing know way more (laughs) about what I'm singing than I do. So um, fast forward to my recordings getting 
popular uh, quickly. And then um, my third album, if they still call them albums, uh, my third collection of songs, um, was uh, uh, picked up by Nat Hentoff, who is, you know, the was the guy, you know, uh, writing for the Wall Street Journal. And I remember our conversation and him saying, you know, you're a true jazz singer and I'm going to write about you. And I remember saying, Mr. Hentoff, I'm really not a jazz singer. I really don't know what I'm doing. I'm just singing the songs. Um, And we had that back and forth. But um, yeah, so I'm just singing the songs the way that I'm informed to sing them with no real training. Just, yeah. It reminds me of so many of those old movies in the MGM 30s and 40s when you have the talented young impresario uh, who just does what you did. I just sing the songs. I, I don't know anything more than that, Mr. Berkeley. I just sing the songs. And that's that's a beautiful thing, though. That's a great gift. Uh, and, and it's true, though, that uh, what you do, as I said in the uh, question before, is you've got a great voice and you can do anything. But your voice lends itself so well to the American standards, the American songbook. Yeah, that's to me is the most effortless thing to, to sing in terms of just kind of closing my eyes and falling into it. Um, it. It feels effortless. And as I mature as a person, like, you know, your your artistry always parallels your personal evolution, you know. Um, I, I find more enjoyment and more, more artistry in the nuances. Um, it's just that, you know, if you're playing with live musicians, you want to play with the best. If you're used to playing with the best, you, you get disappointed sometimes mm-hmm. with less than that, and you don't get as inspired. <laughs> you play multiple instruments, too. Does that make you a better singer to know how to play the drums and the keyboard and other instruments? Does that make a, a vocalist even better? I don't. Maybe some, some, you know, nobody comes to this through the same door. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I always say I came through this through the side cellar door, you know. And, <laughs> <laughs> um, so f- it, it helps me to get, um, uh, understand like, what, you know, maybe a phrase or a key that I'm in. I use, I use it more as a, uh, re- to reference things more than playing because in the jazz genre, I don't play up to the level of my singing in jazz. If it's rock and pop, I'm a, I'm a really good player and I can accompany myself. Mm. But in this genre, it's way over my head and I'm inherently lazy. I just don't want to sit in a oh. room and practice for <laughs> hours at a time. I would just rather have somebody else that can play yeah. really well, uh, play for That's me. Smart. So, um, you know, if I could accompany myself in the jazz genre, I think I would, uh, I'd, I'd be president. I took lessons, uh, music lessons when I was a kid, and I'm so glad I did because even though I didn't continue and follow through, it stays with you forever. You teach uh, music lessons to people, to young people, I would imagine. And what's your technique? What What is it about you besides your sparkling personality <laughs> that gets kids to want to follow through? Because one of the problems I had, uh, my teachers either left town or overcharged, my mother didn't think it was worth it, or whatever, I didn't follow through. What what makes for a good music teacher? Um, really being engaged in the student as, as, as a person, you know, um, and so everybody learns differently, and so I have to figure out how their brains are thinking mm. and how they're integrating, and then come up with ways for them to integrate something, and it's not a one-size-fits-all, and that's why I call myself, for example, a vocal coach or a performance coach, I will, f- I will 
find a way to to get you to draw on everything that you have to move you forward and get a little bit of instant gratification and then um, explain how important it is to stick to the foundational things that you have to work at. Why do not more people take that approach when they're teaching or coaching? It's it's odd to me because I've done a lot of coaching in, in my field, and I always really treasure the opportunities to give somebody hope, <laughs> not to take all that hope away and say, you're stupid, what's the matter with you? And yet there's so much of that, and music can be tough because if you don't practice enough, it's your fault, and then they yell at you. <laughs> right, I know. I'm I'm actually learning guitar, which is amazing to me that I've waited this long. And that believe me, the older Amanda has been, you know, yelling at the younger Amanda, like, why didn't you start yeah, this yeah. Um, earlier? And um, so now, as a student that's getting frustrated a little bit or having to really make the time and really practice, or I'm not going to get better. I had a couple of teachers, and I switched until I found somebody that could match my enthusiasm, yeah. uh, really uh, engage with me, understand how I think, help you know, and and help me to learn in a way that was right for me. So, as as you were just saying you, about how you teach or coach or instruct, it's because you personally are enthusiastic and engaged and present. Mm. And I'm personally enthusiastic and engaged and present. So you can't fake that. Um, you have to want to, you have to want to do it. And if, if you're doing it for any other reason, it's, it's going to very quickly rear mm. its ugly head and you're just not going to give your best. Amanda, that speaks to a term and a word that we used prior to coming in to record, authenticity, something you treasure and I value. I it really shows in the classroom or on a stage. And maybe you can talk a little bit about what an authentic performer is. How is that defined? How I, I, I didn't know I was being authentic. Now I understand what it means to be authentic, but I was naturally authentic just because I didn't have the skill to fake anything else. Um, you know, it's my imperfection that makes the connection. And so I always say it's not about the perfection of what you're doing. It's about the connection of what you're doing. And people oftentimes connect with you through your, 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 your vulnerability and mm. your humanity and your imperfection. So I'm not a perfect singer. I'm an honest singer mm. and I'm an honest performer. So when I get on the stage, what makes me the most comfortable is bringing the audience into my experience. So, and that's the thing that I I most um, uh, am concerned is the wrong word, but I'm I'm focused on most, or I'm crossing my fingers that I can make that connection when I get up there. Maybe it's telling a joke or nothing's prepared. So I have to do that. It's not. I'm not worried about if I'm going to sing well. I'm worried about that connection because that in turn makes the whole thing happen for me and it's authentic. Bravo. Bravo. I feel the same way when I'm when I'm in the audience looking at a at a comics performance or a juggler or anyone. I don't mind if they're honest and real and and admit that, you know, oh, the joke bombed. I'm going to move on to the next one. So stay with me folks. I always love the fact that uh, People are rooting for me as a performer or you as a performer. That's a good feeling, isn't it? That is. And so, you know, you want to you want to offer that to them, mm. you know, um, and now they're 
they're in it with you. And that makes it a much more dimensional experience. I used to say I was the Ellen DeGeneres of jazz <laughs> because she has that quality, you know, when she first came on the scene, that kind of like almost unsteady, unsure, although she always knew what she was doing. And so even though I, I'm serious about the music, I don't, I don't ever dumb that down. I'm mm. serious. People know that I'm serious about the music, but I want everything. Jazz, jazz shouldn't be medicine that you take on a spoon because it's good for you. You know, you, you want people to have that, that experience. One of the shows that I really love, and I don't know if you still do it, but you've done it, and it's the tribute to Peggy Lee. There's a poster Peggy Lee somewhere in the office here, and she was a magnificent performer, underappreciated, I think. But uh, when you're doing something like that, talk a little bit about the process. Uh, are you studying videos and obviously records, but also more of her life story to, to get into that mindset? Yeah, that's a great question, and yes, um, all, all of that. Because when you're doing a show, it's scripted. So the difference between me going up and performing, nothing scripted. But when you're doing a show, it has to fit into a time frame, you know, uh, or it has to have, like, let's say it has an intermission. You know that you have 47 minutes and then another 47 minutes. So, right. you know, it's so you, you have it scripted so mm -hmm. that you're, you're singing the song. You have the same thing that you're saying. And you have to choose what nuggets about that person you know, because you can't read the whole book. You can't tell their whole story. So you have to pick and choose what nuggets about that uh, that person are going to um, uh, tell the most about their story, both musically and, and otherwise. So I love doing that show because it, it took a lot of the anxiety about having to come up on something on my own. But then I could immerse, immerse myself. I love copying people. That's probably from growing up in rock bands and doing cover songs because you have to imitate different singers mm. or, or imitate the essence of their voice. So I've become like this vocal chameleon, and that's fun for me. So to do Peggy Lee, that was really fun to embody her whole presence, her being, even how she spoke, um, and then put it into a show and then go get to do the show. It's amazing how a body of work uh, from, again, the standards, the American Songbook, can express so much in a performer's life. Say Tony Bennett, whom I know you've you've followed and maybe have worked with. Have you ever worked with Tony? Um, I've never worked with him, but I've met him. Okay, it's it's not just the singing of the songs, but it's the meaning of the songs and the depth of feeling in those songs. And Peggy Lee, her library of hits uh, says a lot. I mean, I, I compare her to uh, Lady Day to a certain extent in terms of the emotion. That is her. Yeah, she she had an understated way of delivering a lyric. And so, you know, if you sit with something long enough, things that you didn't notice a space or subtlety about all of a sudden become more of a statement. Mm. And um, she was interesting in that a lot of the band singers like back in the day. Um, and I'll try to make this brief, but back in the day, the, the the band leaders were the stars, not the singers. Yeah, the the vocals were the insert, the the Correct. donut uh, insert, very small part of the song. Right, right. So so yeah. they would sit down, come stand up, you know, sing their part, and then sit back down again. So Peggy Lee was interesting in that her and Sinatra, I, I and I believe part of this was because there was a musician strike back in the, I don't know, late 40s, mm. early 50s, and that's where all the doo-wop groups came up because there were no musicians. Wow, so, yeah, it was an interesting time of transition, and that's when 
the the vocals and the vocalists became the stars. And so Sinatra, there were a lot of band singers, or not a lot, but a, a few that made that transition into being the, the front person. And she not only did that, she became a pop icon with Fever in 1958, which is absolutely unheard of. And she wrote music for, uh, even back in the 40s, she was writing music with her first uh, husband, Dave Barber, for not only herself, but a lot of other singers. And then, of course, for Disney, she she, she even broke into that with right. Lady and the Tramp. So, you know, she really, six-decade career, she uh, she she was able to uh, transition a lot, where a lot of these these uh, vocalists weren't able to transition. You, you said you'd love to imitate and copy I, I call it uh, paying homage in yes. this case. It's beautifully done. There's so much to talk about, so we're gonna we're gonna jump around a little bit. I love it. Performing small clubs, small venues. You've also performed at some of the largest venues on planet Earth, including here in Boston. Mm. Put a little subtext here. You and I did some radio together at the Boston Pops Fourth of July. I, I, I was told look for somebody to to sit with me as I did the quote play by play, and I couldn't think of a better color analyst than Amanda Carr. We had such a blast doing that. Oh my gosh, you know, and you think about things that you want to turn the clock back and experience again, that has to be, you know, one of my top five. But can you describe what it felt like to be up on that stage on national television and who was with you and what the circumstances were? What I love about this story is that, um, and, and I don't know if I uh, can mention, but the artistic director, Dennis Alves, uh, for the Boston Pops, and I have had a really nice relationship, just, you know, just kind of a casual mm-hmm. relationship as me being a musician and him being an artistic director. But um, I remember having lunch with him and saying, you know, Dennis, Michael Chiklis has been coming to the Pops, and he's a Boston boy, and he's a BU guy, and um, you know, he really should host. And I know that you have to be part of NBC. And right now he's doing an NBC thing. We should grab him. And I just kind of gave this this idea, you know, we wrote a song, we should do the song. And he went for it. He was just had the courage and the vision to just go for it. And so we ended up um, taking a song that we wrote that was dedicated to the troops. And Pat Hallenbeck, who arranged, who's wonderful. I think he's still the, the yeah. president of the Musicians Union, but Beautiful. a fantastic arranger and arranged mm-hmm. the song. And we ended up going up and performing this on the Esplanade, July 4th. Um, me, Bob Pascarella, who's my ex-husband, a great guitarist, and uh, and uh, grew up with Michael as best friends. And the three of us went up there, and we had the, the Navy choir behind us and, of course, the pops. And it just doesn't get any bigger than that. And and. You know, uh, I don't know if Michael Chiklis will ever hear this, but he'll probably agree with me. No matter how much you've done in this business, and he's an actor that's been in the Marvel movies, and he's, you know, an Emmy, the Shield, Emmy right. Award winning, the whole thing. He was as nervous as a professional knows to be when you're in a situation like that. You, well, 500,000 of your closest friends live and then the national whole world TV. in national TV anyway. But now, if, if memory serves, you got up from my perch in the broadcast booth, right? And then went backstage. Was it? Were you doing that radio thing with me then? Or no, was it? no, it was after that. Oh, I thought, okay. That was the beginning. And then after that, it was like, hey, now that you've had this experience, what a great color commentator you'd uh, be. See? Because you've experienced what it's like backstage, the preparation, what it's like during rehearsals, um, you know, the, the kind of having that 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 experience soup to nuts. What it's like to be in a in a in a police 
vehicle being escorted six blocks with the with the uh, with the police in front and behind on their motorcycles and the, the the cavalcade going across town and that was exciting and it was just a great experience but when I got to sit with you and you asked me a question I, obviously I was able to to have the experience to be able to draw from yeah that was uh, a lot of fun and we saw some big names and and we're right there to see the greatest fireworks displays in the country it, it really was a magical time it was magical yeah. and, and I remember saying you know hey on the third we should go back and get all the interviews because they don't know <laughs> where to hide yet <laughs> and you were smart we did that and it was and we spent along with the thousands of others uh, one evening in the tunnel of uh, the store drive tunnel as it's known because there were thunderstorms rolling thin and that felt like a science fiction movie that was amazing and what what was really uh, just to clarify they they had uh, thunder and lightning warnings and there was tens of thousands of people that had to be evacuated very quickly and go into the tunnel and Starro drive and Everybody was calm. Everybody was respectful. And people were kind of holding hands and singing in the tunnel with the echo. And, and, and it was just something out of like a Pepsi commercial from the 60s. And then the storm <laughs> passed and we went back. We just went back. continued. It was amazing. One more thing about music. And we could talk all night. You've got all these beautiful uh, CDs that are still available. You're on Spotify. People should check out amandacar.com. The commercial. You know the one I'm referring to. Yeah, I think that's where we met actually, because it was uh, the, the the Jordan's Furniture yeah. commercial. Yeah. For, for for just a little exposition, Jordan's Furniture, well known, huge company, Northeast, uh, now owned by Warren Buffett of all people. Yes. But uh, there was a commercial that they hired you to perform on, and why don't you tell the story? So. Um, at the time, uh, my ex-husband was part of the team that made their fun commercials. So back then, they used to do parodies of real commercials. They were pretty much local, but they would do parodies of national commercials. Mm. And it was fun because people recognized them. And so there was a big commercial from The Gap, and it was a bunch of swing dancers. So they copied that, and they used one of my songs off my my CD for that commercial. And it became super popular. And my CD, which was actually a demo tape, I had to make into actually a professional <laughs> CD. And then a producer in Italy heard it, and then I ended up going to Italy. It was just this kind of... Uh, crazy momentum that was created by it, but it was a lot of fun. And um, what had happened on that, it was getting great momentum on air. And then the attorneys from the national commercial saw the local commercial and said, hey, that's our creative, and kind of gave them a cease and desist, which they did. But that made news everywhere locally. You were like on the minds of so many because what do they say? Spell my name correctly if you're going to put me in the paper like that. Yeah, right. And it wasn't your fault. You were just part of the team. Don't shoot me. I'm just the piano player. (laughs) (laughs) Great memories and a wonderful spot, by the way. Yeah, that was. it's still online on on YouTube. I think I I referenced it the other day uh, to my girlfriend, Hey, Remember That, because she 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 danced in there too there's so many uh, things about uh, you that I want to talk about uh, not to mention the fact that you've done more than radio just with me you ended up doing a stint as a general manager of a radio station and a uh, you scoff, you laugh, but you did quite well in a very challenging area. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I think it's like the second on the top of like the the, the most challenging and horrible jobs you could possibly put yourself through. Um, so I was uh, the executive director for uh, WICN Public Radio. So it not only is it a radio station, but it's 
volunteer and mm. has to be funded by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And you have all these FCC regulations. And it's just it's it's crazy. It's just it's going into a, a, a complete fire pit. Um, and I think when I took the job, I knew how to make a radio out of a coconut from the professor. I think that was my, that was all I really had as far as knowledge to draw on. But, you know, went in there and, and I always say fresh eyes, fresh ears, and um, really took the station from kind of old school, old paradigm into being able to have a foundation to grow in, in kind of the new age, so to speak. So, um, yeah, for the two and a half years that I did it, um, I'd like to think that I, I left it with in good shape. You I know? think you did. I was uh, actually up there to be interviewed, I think, at one point, and uh, you were still in command, and everyone loved it, and uh, it was a great—I mean, it, it was a tough job because money is— the thing there ain't there ain't none there ain't none and and it's it requires an awful a lot of you and you know and I think that really uh, what it taught me most of all is that if you're gonna be in the trenches you have to be passionate about what you do because mm. then all the other stuff really doesn't bother you you know uh, you don't look at things as issues or problems you look at them as challenges you know so um, that taught me a lot. Uh, in terms of, hey, you know, what do I really want to be passionate about? So um, I look at everything as a great experience. And, it, and, and I grew up a lot, you know, career-wise. That, that taught me a lot of good career lessons, and I, I developed a lot of uh, skills that I, I certainly didn't have going in the front door. And speaking of skills, you've branched out a little bit, a lot, actually, to do <laughs> all kinds of things helping other people, in, in turn helping yourself. Uh, and let's explore a little bit of that. I know you, you're you a coach, a life coach. We'll define how that works in your life. But also uh, you've gotten physical with uh, people. You've gotten – not that you're fighting in the MMA. You've become a massage therapist and you're getting a lot of great feedback from that. Yeah. You know, I uh, I, I guess uh, we all wear our age like a badge of honor, you know. So, um, you know, after leaving the station um, – I asked myself some really hard questions, and I, I said to myself, self, <laughs> if nobody's looking and you're on an island and you didn't have to choose anything, you know, sexy or what's considered successful, what do you want to wake up and do? It could be anything. It could be I want to run a coffee shop. It could be I want to be a dog walker. But just mm. be honest with yourself. And what parts of yourself do you want to grow, develop? And, you know, I, I looked at where I, I felt that my, my I guess, gifts were or, or, or really what made me me. And, um, you know, I, I went back to school <laughs> for massage therapy. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and, and I'm so happy I did that. I, I have a wonderful clientele. I'm, um, and uh, it's endless learning because we're, we're talking about the human body. So it doesn't just stop at, you know. What was it that propelled you to go there? I mean, was there a particular event or person who influenced you or what? Not really. I, I mean, um, I, I think that par- part of what it is is what can I do to, to enter into something that I have really good intuition? Mm. You know, um, I, it, it's tactile. It's um, it's connection. Mm. Um, it, it's empathy. It's all the things that kind of roll in. Plus, it's not something that I had to go to school for for six years True. and a quarter of a million dollars. You know, I looked at it in how can I get up and running you know, with a license, it's something that you have to be licensed for, where a lot of things you just have a certificate. But so, 
um, what what can I do that I can kind of get up and running? And then after you get up, up and running, the learning is endless. Nobody says you can have to stop learning. So that was part of why I chose that in particular. And then from there, if I want to go back to school for something else, mm. at least I have this as a, as a foundation. And it's been wonderful. You mentioned uh, some of the things that this allows you to focus on, empathy being one of them. But I would also suggest that um, you, you've always been a person, as long as I've known you, who could have done the star thing, who could have been the diva. I mean, I've worked, and so have you, with a lot of them, male and females, no difference, divas. But you've always kept your ego very much in check, and I think you're very comfortable with yourself and who you are. But um, what do you attribute that to? And also, what advice do you have for young performers or anyone who wants to be a, quote, star in their field about ego? Um. That's a big question, and I'll answer it in two ways. Um, part of what made me um, uh, kind of dull my shine sometimes came from not not such a good place. Um, as you know, when you shine, you get haters. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, as a people pleaser and somebody, you know, growing up and, you know, we want to be liked, I, I ended up, you know, the higher I would go, the more I had to deal with that. And I think that that was part of it, part of why I didn't really want to put myself out there. Part of it was lack of confidence. Part of it was not having the kind of emotional support that it does take to do that. Part of it is not knowing myself. So I started early. I started in my teens. So all the things that, you know, affect us personally are going to affect our career growth. Um But that being said, it goes back to the word authenticity. When I feel that something's not authentic, I I just can't do it. So if there's part of a career growth that has to do with me becoming somebody that's not authentic, I just can't do it. I wish I could, but I can't. And I've had opportunities even years ago when I was in my 20s and long blonde hair and, you know, had, you know, a a talent level that could probably have been developed Um, when when my fiance at the time who was, uh, you know, killed in the plane crash and was uh, I had uh, his associations. I could have very easily have written a ticket on on a traditional kind of star path. But it just didn't serve me personally. And so my journey has really been my own. And um, um, as you know, as being an authentic person, that's where the fun is for me, is, is I don't need to have it in a particular – I don't need to be signing an autograph or having a dressing room to enjoy what I'm doing. It's really more about who I'm doing it with, the connection. I love running karaoke night because it's so supportive and loving and people support each other and you get to see people that that come out of their shell and you get to see people, you know, joyously expressing themselves. So it's that part of the art form that I'm, I, I, I most enjoy. And I think the next question you asked me, what, what advice I'd give to young people is stay true to what you want to do as a as a creative artist in your own authentic creative expression don't think of this is the result i want to get if you start looking at the result you're going to fall into the comparison you're going to start limiting yourself you're going to start chasing trends instead of mm. really taking all your energy and focus and saying how can i personally have an authentic unique expression of myself 
And mm. that's really, that's where the magic happens. And then it unfolds the way it should. I would uh, preface this too, that you mentioned vulnerability earlier. And I think that's a, a beautiful human characteristic that people tend to want to cover up and not show. And I'll only bring this up because you brought it up, but you you suffered a tremendous loss, the loss of your fiance, and this was a plane crash involving the Reba McIntyre band. Yeah, he was with the band. Sure. And this is somebody you're you're thinking on the morning of, I'm going to spend the rest of my life with this person, and then he's taken away. I had a different situation. My first wife, whom you know, died after a long battle. But either way, it's it's traumatic and so forth. And if you don't uh, share your grief with people who love you or care about you or even your audience, then I think you're doing yourself a disservice and you're hurting yourself in the long run. There's something very connectable about the vulnerability and the and the challenge, as we call them, that brings us, binds us together more than the glitz and glamour. Glitz, anybody can buy glitz and glamour. You can't trade that human interaction of, over grief I think people are looking for that now. I think that's especially with everything that's happening yeah. in the world. People want authenticity. That's kind of like the new buzzword, and it's become a buzzword because we're realizing what a gift that is. And, and that's really – it represents us as human beings. I mean this is the thing that, that separates us from – from AI is th- to, to show up as as unique expressions of, of the universe, like mm-hmm. this is it. Um, yeah. We're all so incredibly different for a reason. And it's interesting you should, you should talk about that and vulnerability. Um, before uh, the pandemic began, I was over in China and I was teaching students and I was, you know, um, uh, coming up with a, with a, like a, a vocal course and, and, um, and through that, they were going to be doing this online kind of an American Idol thing, but it was all through their phones. They do so many things through their phone. And I was going to be kind of like the Paula Abdul of the judges, okay? So my first question was, well, I'm not a kid here. Do I need to use one of those filters that they have? Like, is there a filter you can recommend? And they said, no, no, no. The pendulum over in China is swinging completely the other way. They're tired of the filters. They're tired of all all of that. They want the space between your teeth. They want the wrinkles. They want authenticity. So in a country that was kind of ahead of us with, with all of that, with mm-hmm. all the, 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 the filters and the artificial, they want real now. Like that's the new thing. And it's new for them in terms of the, the younger generation it's new to them. That could be the hope for the future. You know, the world's a crazy place as we record. Uh, there's a war going on in Europe right now that's just devastating. And it could be the, the the one difference about where we are today is the fact that young people particularly, but anybody, is is able to witness stuff across the globe in an instant and realize, wait a minute, not everybody has to suffer the way I'm suffering under this yoke of government or whatever it might be. So I am, I am hopeful on that regard. Before we close out, there and, and this speaks to trauma, but it also speaks to victory over it. Let's talk about a project that I was so behind and I was so happy to help you in a small way. And that in is- a big way. <laughs> that is uh, the marathon bombing of, ni- of 2013 um, is indelibly etched in our minds, especially from this area and I think all over the country. And we all know what happened. Uh, three people were killed. Hun- hundreds were wounded. Fifty-plus were maimed beyond belief. 
and you decided to do what you do and apply art to uh, to a cause. Let's talk about the song, the Boston song. So it ended up being called the Boston anthem, and you know a lot of a lot of artists wrote songs, and a lot of artists mm. were 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 absolutely inspired to do that. Uh, and I think what inspired us was how the city came together. And I think that's where the inspiration is. And I thought about what a wonderful city this is. And and it, it kind of echoes how the city began, you know, with the, the, the Redcoats and, mm-hmm. you know, Paul Revere and everybody coming together and the tea party. So um, I just figured that the, the city doesn't have a song. It needed a song or an anthem that really spoke to that spirit. So um, I, that's what in, it, it inspired me to, to write it. And it came out very anthem-esque. Like it really was one of those things that, you you know, you can play it at a school or, you know, my, my, my vision was it was we played at the stadiums, you know. Um, and so um, I just think it, it came out uh, in a way that affected people uh, deeply and in a positive way. Um, and the video was the first video I ever did where I sat with an editor and chose the shots and really wanted to, to represent the song. And you were so instrumental in helping me launch this on your radio show. And, you know, you can't force this on people. It's been out there for years now. And sometimes, you know, people pick it up and play it. It's free. And, and, and It was played at some sporting events over yes, the years. And I, I think it, and it, it has a, maybe a different meaning for people hearing it for the first time. But, boy, was it prescient back then. Very, very much a song that got you to well up, but also to have pride. I I was so excited when you brought it to the radio station and we played it. We launched it on the air and uh, got some great reaction. So. You know, I think it was like, oh, my gosh, I think this is good. I'm not sure, but <laughs> I think this is good. <laughs> it was good. And, it is good. And we we just deserve more than Dirty Water or like the, the songs that, you know, they Yeah, they Charlie can. on the MTA. Yeah, you yeah. know, so, you know, who who knows where it's going to be in the future. But but I know that uh, Lily Hopkins uh, during the pandemic interviewed me with that song on Fox 25 because it kind of resurged in the sense where Boston was still right. coming together through right. through this last well, uh, issue. you've got a lot in your legacy camp, but that's a good one. I think that's, that's a good a one. Good I'll one. take that's it. That's a good one. Uh, I think the world of you, as you know, we've worked together on stage, on the radio, I know. and finally, I got you to come in to do the podcast. And all I can say is, keep on being who you are, being authentic, and being Amanda Carr. And by the way, your music is available everywhere that fine music is found. Correct? <laughs> yes, Spotify, iTunes. Uh, yeah, YouTube, because a lot of CD babies on YouTube. So it's just really amandacar.com or just Google Amanda Carr vocalist, uh, and you'll, you'll, find, you'll find what's out there. And if you got an ache on your left side <laughs> and you need a great massage therapist, somebody who's empathetic and has great healing powers, you're the woman. Heartofpalms.me. That's Heart it. of Palms. I love that. Thank you. That's a pun. I get it. I know. It's me, little, my little marketing brain, heartofpalms.me. Very good. Amanda, great to see you. We love you. Take care. Visit amandacar.com, and that's car with two R's. Find out more about this beautiful, amazing lady and what she's up to. And just so you know, she's always up to something new and creative. amandacar.com. Thanks to Dan Tebow of Fast Switch Media, to Chart Productions, where we produce this and many other projects, and of course to you guys for being such a great audience worldwide. I like to think that uh, I'm forming connections with people. Ultimately, it's all due to spoken word, the conversation that is alive and well. Till next time, this is J.R. Jordan Rich saying, as always, be well so you can do good. Take care.